Our call does not change. Stand on the words of Jesus. Speak the words of Jesus. Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out our website and social media. Now, here's our special guest speaker, Amberly Streetbeck. I'm just, can I just say I'm glad we're all friends here? Because I want you to look with me again at the scripture that I'm supposed to preach from this morning. Did y'all hear that? Okay, like, in my head, what I'm imagining is if I were amongst the disciples, this is mostly Jesus speaking. It's mostly red letter stuff that we're looking at today. And if I were among the disciples, I have a feeling this would sound less like a sermon or even an apocalyptic warning and more like an Abbott and Costello routine. Where, you know, but in those days, wait, what days? The ones following the distress, oh good. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. But at that point, we'll see the Son of Man coming. How? The sun just fell out of the sky. I don't... And then I'm supposed to learn a lesson from a fig tree that I don't really understand. But then he says these things will definitely happen. They'll definitely happen before this generation passes away. And then it says, but no one knows when it's going to happen. No one, not even me. And I am confused. Be on guard. Against what? Be alert. For which? I don't understand. Pay attention. It's right at the door. What door? Anybody else confused? Okay. The good news is I'm not the first person to try to interpret this passage of Scripture. So I do what I always do, and I start turning to the commentaries that I go thieve out of Ryan's office. So um, I, I brought some with me today, and I started reading. Um, this is Mary Healy, who says, um, chapter 13 of Mark is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in Mark and in the entire New Testament. Oh, good. Okay, good. Let's just try a different one. Let's, let's see what James Edwards has to say. So I tried again. The absence of the original context of the various sayings and their indefiniteness combined to make this one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand for readers and interpreters alike. Oh, good. Okay, listen. Thankfully, these guys got a lot more helpful after the opening paragraphs. And I think, I think we can do this together. But it's going to take some real diligence and some patience and um, maybe just as a kindness to me, just like lower your expectations way down here about how clear any of this is going to be. But I think we can do it. I really do. One of the biggest gifts I've gotten in interpreting scripture uh, came from a teacher that many of you are familiar with as well. Um, her, Her name is Sandy Richter. You've done her studies with us on Wednesday nights, and she was Ryan's Old Testament professor when he was in seminary. And Sandy Richter always insists that we can't really come to Scripture until we situate ourselves in real time and real space. These were not words that were delivered to the air. They weren't inscribed on a rock. This was delivered by an actual person named Jesus to an actual audience in real time and in real space. And we know, we know intuitively that, they, that real time and real space matter. 
but they really matter today. Okay, I want to give you kind of an example to set us up. Um, don't the, the decorations look amazing? Everybody did a really good job, right? And if I'm standing up here on the stage with, amongst all of these, and I say these decorations, you know that I mean these near me, right? As opposed to, say, those really pretty decorations out there. Maybe now I'm talking about the wreaths that are hung along, or about those decorations out in the foyer, all of which look really beautiful. But where I'm standing matters. If I say these, I mean the one closest to me, and those, I mean the one farther away. Now, if Jerry were to stand up in the back back there and say, these Christmas decorations look really pretty, she would mean the wreaths. And if she said, those Christmas decorations look really pretty, she would mean the ones on the stage, right? These versus those, it matters where I'm at in space. It also matters where I'm at in time when we use words like that, right? If I say to you right now, I am really, really tired of everything that's been going on these days. Does anybody need further explanation right now? No. We're all tired, right? And you know what I mean by these days, right? The ones that are approximately close, right? But when I say those days, I might be pointing backward. I might be saying, you know, back in those days when I could shake your hand and give you a high five. Or I might be saying those days in the future, the ones we're all longing for, the ones we're looking forward to. You know, when there's a vaccine that's effective and widely disseminated and I can hug you again, I am coming for you. I'm going to make it awkward, okay? I miss hugs. I miss hugs. But that's those days, right? That's not these days. So you can see how it matters. We have to situate ourselves in space and in time for words like that to make sense. So we're going to do that here, and it's going to help us a lot with this passage. So we're going to find ourselves in the real space in the real time. This chapter is primarily a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and we're very near the end of Jesus' life. They've been together a long time. They trust one another. And we're just hours uh, before Jesus is arrested and crucified. We are near Jerusalem, okay? I almost had Kent and Susan bring pictures. Y'all might could have done this better justice than I did, but we're going to try it this way. Jerusalem is a city on a hill, and this is going to be our Jerusalem over here, okay? This is a hill. Everybody see it? Hill. Okay. Jerusalem is a city on a hill. There's a wall near the bottom of the hill. The city is mostly a series of flat-roofed homes, except very prominently high on the hill you can see the temple, the center of Jewish life. It's still under construction, but it's massive. It's the most prominent building visible for miles around. It's, it's the most uh, impressive structure that likely any person in this vicinity has ever seen. So Jerusalem, temple, okay? Then there's a valley. This is the low place here in the middle, Valley of Kidron. Over here, another hill. Everybody see this hill? Yeah, good. <laughs> Y'all are good. Another hill. This hill is the Mount of Olives. About two miles, yeah? Two, two and a half. And on the Mount of Olives, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you can see with an unimpeded view almost in the front door of the temple. Okay? 
So Jesus, where we're at in Jesus' narrative is Jesus has come down, he leaves the Mount of Olives, and this is where he mounts the colt, right, and makes his triumphal entry. Y'all remember the waving of the palm branches and Hosanna and Hosanna? And he rides into Jerusalem, goes to the temple up here on the hill, overturns the money tables, makes everybody mad, leaves town again, maybe kind of understandably. Goes and spends the night in Bethany, back near the other hill. Then he goes back into Jerusalem the next day, along a similar path, Mark tells us, and teaches all day long in the temple. He, this is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law are determined to trap him, so he's sort of matching wits with them all day long. He's teaching the crowds who are in awe of him. He's teaching his disciples. And then that's where we pick up our narrative today. As Jesus was leaving the temple, right, he's leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, um, when, he, when they say stones, they don't mean like river rocks you can pick up and put in your pocket, right? This is a building built out of stones that have been quarried and cut and stacked. Some of them weigh a couple of tons. Some of them weigh 80 tons. And so he has just blown the disciples' minds in I don't know how many ways. For one, just the pure physicality of the idea that something this strong could be knocked down at all. That stones that heavy could be toppled one from another. The sheer amount of force and destruction that would have to happen. Not to mention the idea that the temple was the very center of their whole lives, of their whole faith lives for their entire lives and their parents' lives and their parents' lives before that. Not only they can't imagine that the temple itself would fall down, but they can't imagine what life would be like without it. What would we even do? How would the rhythms of our life be determined if the temple wasn't there? How would we know where God is? How would we know that God is good and that God is with us and that God is on our side? This is not good news. What it says, the next cue we're given to real space and real time is in verse three. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple. Okay, so this is where we're at now. We're back on this hill. We're facing the temple that we just talked about. There's no dialogue recorded in that two and a half mile walk. I imagine it was long and slow and sad and quiet. And the rest of this discourse of Jesus is delivered to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, looking at the representation of the life that they've always known, of everything that was solid and predictable and dependable and good and holy. And they're sad because Jesus just, just told them that the whole thing is coming down. So here's where our, our cues become important, right? They say, Jesus, tell us when these things, these things will happen. So throughout this passage, we're gonna look for two cues because what Jesus does is talk to them about these things. Remember how I said these things, the one near. He's gonna talk to them about the destruction of the temple. He elaborates, which we'll look at in a minute on what these things will entail, the ones that will happen 
before this generation passes away. Then he switches. You could skip down and look at like verse uh, 17 or in verse 24. Then we talk about those days. It's a switch. So there's two different things that Jesus is teaching them about here. He's talking to them about these things, and then he's talking to them about those days. Remember, Ryan just told us in Advent, we are still amongst the people looking forward and waiting those days, the days when Jesus returns to earth, the days when he comes to judge the quick and the dead, to set all things right, to bring about the kingdom of God in its fullness. So when you see us, when we're looking at this passage, we're gonna look at these things, these days, the immediate context around the disciples' lives, and those days when Jesus comes back. Now, he switches back and forth. So if anybody's taking notes and you wanna read this later, verses one through 13 are all about these things. Then he switches, and 14 through 27 is about those days. Then he switches back, 28 through 31, we're back to these things. And then he switches again, and finally tells us more about those days. So I want us to look at why any of that matters to us. What can we learn from the way Jesus talks to his disciples about these things being the immediate circumstances of their life that are not gonna be real easy for a little while. And about those days, about what it's gonna be like when Jesus comes in his fullness and the kingdom of God is brought in wholeness. So amongst the things he's telling the disciples about, that these things, the temple will be taken down. He goes on to elaborate and say, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. He says, you'll be handed over to local councils, you'll be flogged in the synagogues, you'll be arrested and brought to trial. If I were to summarize, Jesus is saying to them, it's about to get hard. It's about to get weird and it's about to get hard. And can you imagine Jesus sitting with us in this space about a year ago today? You know, the first case of coronavirus was discovered almost exactly a year ago today. Can you imagine Jesus being with us as someone who cares about the these things that we face as much as he cared about the these things that the disciples face, saying, y'all, okay, it's about to get weird, and it's about to get hard. Some of the things that you thought were solidly, dependably always going to be there are kind of going to be in upheaval. The decisions that used to be automatic are going to get real confusing and fuzzy. The things that you used to depend on to demonstrate to you that God was present and God is faithful and God is good are going to get harder to see. They're going to get harder to find some days. It's about to get weird and it's about to get hard. But I want you to look with me at Jesus' instructions to the disciples as these things are coming about. He says, he says to them some really baffling things. Can I just say this? First he says, <clears throat> do not worry 
When you're, when you're arrested, don't worry about what you're going to say. When you're arrested, don't worry about... Is anybody else blown away by this a little bit? Now, he's telling them they're coming for you. He's announcing this reality. They are coming for you. And he does not say, arm yourself to the teeth and fight them off. Nor does he say, find a good place to hide and wait them out. He says, they're coming for you. And he says, talk about Jesus. Whatever new and weird and scary and unsafe, completely dangerous, completely unprecedented circumstances you find yourself in, talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. This is just another occasion for you to talk about Jesus. I think when I heard sort of apocalyptic type messages like this when I was a kid growing up in the church, I somehow got the message that the idea of knowing the signs of the times was to change the times. But Jesus doesn't say they're going to change any of it. He says every uncomfortable and terrifying circumstance that's coming for you is another chance to talk about Jesus. It's another chance to share the gospel. It's another chance to live out the faith that we've been given. When he's talking to them later in the chapter about these things, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will never pass away. That no matter how upside down your word, world feels, if it feels like the very heavens and earth are disappearing around you, the word of Christ is unmovable and unshakable. Nothing, nothing that has happened in 2020 or any time before or will happen from here on out is a threat to the gospel. None of it has changed. The truth of the gospel is completely the same as it was exactly this time last year and the year before, and it will be next year. My words will not pass away. In the midst of these things, whatever these things are, stand on the words of Jesus, speak the words of Jesus. Our call does not change. Stand on the words of Jesus, speak the words of Jesus. Okay, so that's the these days sections. What about those days? What about the coming of Christ that we are still looking forward to in the exact same way that they were? Well, I want to use a metaphor that Jesus himself uses in this passage, okay? Um, he says that these things, the immediate ones, are the beginnings of birth pains. So the implication is that those things are like the end of birth pains. When scripture uses metaphors about building things, I'm gonna leave them to Ryan. But when scripture uses birth metaphor, it's my turn. These things, he said, it's like the first contractions. Not fun. But the thing about birth pains is that it's the only time that the human body registers pain and doesn't immediately try to heal it. It's the only time that it's not a sign of, it's not a sign of disease. It's not a sign of injury. It's not a sign that something's wrong, right? Birth pains are pains with purpose. You know what I'm saying? 
And yes, it does escalate. It does. It gets worse. And then the next contraction's a little worse. And so by implication, the conditions before Jesus comes are the worst of the birth pains. It does get worse. These things are the beginning. Those things are going to be worse. But it is pain with purpose. It's pain with purpose because the end goal, just like the end goal of labor and delivery, is known. And it is good news. That's also another thing I missed. I think growing up hearing about Jesus coming back for us, I sort of missed the fact that it's good news. It seemed scary and overwhelming, and there were terrifying movies made in the 70s with creepy minor key campfire songs. It made it all seem like a threat. But it's not. It's, you know, going through labor is not something I would ever want to volunteer for again, but every parent in here knows it was absolutely worth it. It was absolutely pain with a purpose. It was worth it the moment that I gathered Morgan into my arms. And the day that I held Ethan. And the day that I met Reese. That kind of joy. That kind of joy is what we get to know. Look at the imagery that is described. Like, yes, it's bad, the birth pains begin. Yes, it gets worse, like real bad. And I promise, man, those transition contractions I thought were never, ever going to end, and I was going to be in labor for the rest of my life. But then, look at this imagery. Verse 26. At that time... People will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds. He will gather us like a newborn is gathered to his parent. My role in the return of Jesus is to be gathered. That's it, to be welcomed, to be gathered and brought home. It's the end of the pain. It's the end of the travail. So what about from now until then? What is our role from now until we are gathered home to Abba? The instruction that is repeated throughout Mark chapter 13, it's the same Greek phrase over and over. It's translated a little differently in the English and in different translations, but the exact same Greek phrase happens over and over again. And it's summarized best here at the end. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge each with their assigned task, and he tells one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. And if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Again, our instructions are pretty singular. 
And they don't change no matter what the circumstances are. We're not supposed to be reading the signs of the times so that we can change the times. We're not supposed to be, um, you know, he's warned us earlier here about false messiahs and false prophets. We're not supposed to become experts in the false messiahs or the false prophets. We are supposed to be dedicated to watching for the real one. I always thought, again, a misconception, that my, my job was to figure out who the false messiahs were and who the false prophets were and who the false teachers were and shut them down, probably by arguing with them in the comment section of Facebook or something. I don't want to be an expert in the false prophets. I want to be looking for the real one. I want to be listening to the words of the real one, right? We stand on the words of Jesus, we speak the words of Jesus, and we eagerly wait and watch for Jesus. That's it. This is what we do. We look forward to being gathered home to our Abba. Um, I learn from my kids all the time, but I think this particular image I learned from Reese. Um, especially, especially right now, because poor kid has been in the house with the five of us since, I don't know, a hundred years ago. And you ought to see Reese when I say, for instance, Jeannie's going to come over in a little bit and drop something off. And Reese goes, I'm going to go put on my shoes and wait in the front yard. <laughs> and I'm going to be riding my bike so I can show her that I'm riding my bike. And she might ride her bike and she might play the pads, but mostly what she's doing is waiting for Jeannie to come over. Like, hey, Stacy's going to come over in just a minute. Okay, I'll be on the front porch. She's not coming for three hours. Don't care! <laughs> if our demeanor could be like that, no matter what's swirling around us, the gospel is unthreatened and unchanged. We are still invited to a singular purpose. We stand on the words of Jesus. We speak the words of Jesus, and we watch for Jesus. Amen? Amen.